Last week, we considered some of the extraordinary claims that Jesus made about himself. He said that he had the authority to forgive sins, all sins. He said that one day at the end of time, everyone who has ever lived will be gathered before him. And not only will he judge the thoughts and the intentions of every human heart, but our eternal destiny rides on whether or not we acknowledge him in this life. And he claimed to be the one and only son of the father. He placed himself on the same level as the father, making himself equal with God. So what do you make of these claims? Well, I would suggest that the one thing that we cannot do is what many people try to do, and that is to ignore them. A lot of people have said to me over the years, well, maybe Jesus claimed to be divine, maybe he didn't, but either way, it doesn't matter. Either way, I've got to find my own truth. I've got to carve out my own path. If believing in Jesus helps you, that's good for you, but it's not necessarily good for me. It doesn't matter. But respectfully, I would say that it does matter quite a bit because no one made the kinds of claims that Jesus did and got away with it. So let me repeat something that I said last week because I think that repetition is important to our learning. Sometimes things sink in a little bit deeper when we hear them a slightly different way. But one of the things I said last week is that you have to realize that when it comes to investigating the claims of Jesus, you are not impartial, though you may think you are. The claims of Jesus, if Jesus really did what he claim to be able to do, if he really is who he said he was, well then those claims make a claim on you. They're a threat to your autonomy. If Jesus really is the forgiver of sins, the judge of all the earth, if he is the one and only son of God, well then that means that you can't just live your life however way you want. That's a threat to your autonomy. You've got to yield control to your life, and he can ask anything of you. So Jesus' claims make a claim on you. Therefore, you're not impartial. You're not just neutral. Let me give you an analogy. If I asked you to arbitrate a dispute between two people, if you didn't have anything to do with those two people, you could arbitrate that dispute as an impartial judge. But if, on the other hand, you had something to gain or to lose through the outcome, well, then you're not impartial. You're, you're not neutral. And that's how it is with investigating the claims of Jesus. We have something to gain or lose by the outcome. We're invested in it. And therefore, we, we need to just acknowledge that. That doesn't mean that we can't decipher whether or not Jesus said or did things that are true, but it does mean that we have to recognize that within ourselves, there's something that will prevent us from wanting to trust or wanting to believe in Jesus because it is a threat to our own autonomy. So we consider the claims of Jesus. Today I'd like to do something different, inspired by something that John Stott wrote over 50 years ago. I'd like us to turn from the claims that Jesus made to the character that Jesus displayed. If you juxtapose the the claims that Jesus made about himself with his character, the way in which he actually lived his life, it creates something of an apparent paradox that I would suggest is only resolved if Jesus really is who he claimed to be. So we have to take a look, a hard look, at the self-centered nature of Jesus' claims and the utterly unself-centered nature of his actions. So today what I'd like us to do is zero in on three defining features of Jesus' character. 
And what I have to say today may be somewhat familiar to you, but I'd like you to try to feel the weight of these words. Imagine what it would have actually been like to meet Jesus, because his character is altogether different from anything we've ever experienced before. So the three features of his character that we'll focus on today are the fact that Jesus is presented to us in the Gospels as matchless, sinless, and selfless. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Mark chapter 10. You'll find the passage printed for you beginning on page 846 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in the order of worship. I'll be reading Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, if nothing else, Jesus is presented to us in the historic gospels as a magnetic leader. People were fascinated by Jesus. People from all different backgrounds and walks of life were irresistibly attracted to him. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, the educated elite, and the poor beggar in the street. He lived a matchless life. And part of the reason why is because there was no discrepancy between Jesus' words and his actions. Now, let me provide you with a little contrast because contrast often brings clarity. Jesus made audacious claims, and yet there was no discrepancy between his words and his actions. Well, let's consider someone else who made audacious claims. Jim Jones founded the People's Temple in Indianapolis in 1955, and then he moved the church to San Francisco. And he gained quite a following. And talk about audacious claims. He said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, as well as the reincarnation of the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, the Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. The difference is that his words did not match his actions. And everything was exposed in 1977 as a group of his closest followers broke out of the church and they started talking to journalists about Jim Jones's abuses of power, his weird obsession with sex, his addiction to prescription drugs. So Jim Jones had to flee 
to the commune that he was building in Guyana before this expose was published. And this led to the Jonestown Massacre, where over 900 people died of murder-suicide, and he shot himself in the head. But what I want you to see is, we should expect that. That's the typical kind of thing. That's, that's normal when people make extravagant, extraordinary claims about themselves. He might have said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, but it was clear that he was nothing more than a deranged megalomaniac. Okay, well, Jesus is making audacious claims about himself too, but what's the difference? The difference is that he shows no sign of imbalance, no sign of being unhinged. Jesus demonstrates complete self-mastery. Now, who was it that ultimately did Jim Jones in? Well, it was his closest followers who then broke away and exposed the truth. Well, what about Jesus' followers? I mean, Jesus had a very tight group of 12 more people who dedicated at least three years of their life to living with him, learning from him. Now, we know that familiarity often breeds contempt. We might present ourselves a certain way to the world, but it's the people who live with us who know what we're really like. So if I wanted to find out a little bit more about your character, what kind of a person you are, I wouldn't just listen to what you had to say. I'd talk to your roommate. And in a similar way, you might perceive me a certain way as a Christian minister, but if you wanted to know what I'm really like, all you'd have to do is talk to my wife and kids. They would have no problem telling you what I do when I'm stressed or frustrated or upset or feeling impatient or selfish. And they could tell you plenty of times when I lost my cool, said something I shouldn't have, or withdrew because I don't like conflict. But what about Jesus' disciples? The Gospels provide us with a very, very honest portrait of the disciples. But the disciples have nothing to say negative about Jesus in particular. So look at the contrast between the two. And that brings us back to our passage that we've just read. The disciples constantly find themselves arguing with one another or getting on one another's nerves. And in Mark chapter 10, James and John cannot conceal their ambition. They know that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and that's where everything's going to happen. And so they pull Jesus aside and they say, hey, Jesus, will you do anything we ask? Now, that's a loaded question. So Jesus says, well, what do you want? And they assume that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to kick butt. He's going to drive the Romans out of Palestine. He's going to make Israel a great nation again. And so they say, Jesus, when you come in your glory, when you establish your new administration, we want the two best seats in the cabinet. We want to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. And when the other 10 disciples hear James and John make this request of Jesus, they get indignant. They're ticked off. Now, why are they mad? Are they mad because James and John are so arrogant and presumptuous? No, they're mad because they got to Jesus first. They beat him to the punch. They think to themselves, oh, we should have thought of asking Jesus that. We want to be in the room where it happens. So the Gospels are not afraid to give us a very honest portrait of human beings, even if that means portraying the disciples in a very unflattering light. 
And yet, when it comes to Jesus, we don't see anything like that. Now, Jesus is presented to us as fully human. Jesus gets tired and hungry and thirsty. He experiences human emotions like love and anger and joy and sorrow. But Jesus never loses his cool. He never grows impatient. And there's literally no one like him. He is matchless. So let let me give you just one little example. If you turn to Matthew 14, you'll see that Jesus receives news that his own cousin, John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for his coming, has been beheaded by Herod. And Jesus is just overcome with grief, understandably. And so he gets in a boat and moves to a desolate place because he needs to be alone. He needs to be alone in his grief. But the crowds figure out where he's going. And so they follow him. And when Jesus sees the crowd, even in the midst of this overwhelming grief, he's filled with compassion. And he proceeds to heal those who are sick. And it takes all day, Matthew tells us. And so as night falls, the disciples come to Jesus and say, look, you've been at this all day. Send the crowds away. Tell them to go find something to eat. But Jesus responds by saying, no, you don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. And then Jesus proceeds to feed the crowd. So do you realize Jesus gets exhausted in the service of others, but he never turns them away. Or in John chapter 4, Jesus is parched by the heat of the noonday sun, and yet he's not too thirsty to converse with the woman at the well and to address her needs. The one single word that is used over and over again to describe the character of Jesus is compassion. He was matchless in his compassion. But we can't stop there. It'd be one thing to emphasize all the good things that Jesus did, but what's so striking about the Gospels is that they not only present him as a matchless leader, full of virtue, but the Gospels also present Jesus as free of vice. He's not just matchless, he's sinless. Now, think about this. We, we might take this for granted, but Imagine what it would have been like to meet Jesus. Though we are often told of his temptations, we're never told of his sins. He never admits a mistake or asks for forgiveness, even though he encourages his followers to do so. There's a reason why the scriptures tell us that we need to learn to tame the tongue. And I can tell you, I say a lot of stupid things. But when it comes to the statements of Jesus, Jesus never hesitated or apologized. He never contradicted himself. He never had to withdraw or modify something he said, which is something we have to do all the time. He never experienced a lapse in judgment or a moral failure. Jesus never indicates any sense of guilt or remorse. So consider a couple examples. On the one hand, it's true that Jesus allowed John the Baptist to baptize him. Now, John went about baptizing people as a sign of the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign of repentance. And so when Jesus presents himself to John the Baptist, even John is uncomfortable. And he says, Jesus, you got this all backwards. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. But Jesus insists, no, we must go through with this. I must be baptized, quote, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, 
Jesus insists on being baptized, not because he's acknowledging that he is a sinner, but rather to identify with those who are. Or consider John chapter 8, when a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery is dragged before Jesus, and her accusers want to see if Jesus will condemn her and uphold the law by insisting that she be stoned. Now, right away, we know that something is off, because let me just remind you that adultery takes two. That's not a sin that takes place in isolation. So the first question we should ask is, where's the man? So clearly, this is a trap for Jesus. If he lets the woman go and pardons her, well, then they can say he's not serious about God's law. But if, on the other hand, he insists that she be condemned, well, the Romans had taken away the right to capital punishment, so they can accuse him of treason before the Roman authorities. But Jesus outfoxes them. And he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then they all begin to leave, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus eventually is the only one left. He's the only one there because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one in a position to cast a stone, and yet he doesn't. He says, neither do I condemn you, and now go and sin no more. But what I want you to see is that in that very same chapter, Jesus will later say, who convicts me of sin? Have I done anything wrong? And if not, then why won't you listen to me? Now, just think about that for a minute. Some of you are new, so you may not know me all that well. Others of you have experienced me in varying ways. But if I were to stand up here in front of everyone and publicly say, can any of you recall a time when I did something wrong? We'd have a line out the door. But Jesus can say that in front of a crowd, and he leaves the crowd speechless. So do you see that? When Jesus accuses others of sin, they slink away one by one. When he invites others to accuse him of sin, no one has a word to speak. He can stay, and he can bear the scrutiny. And let me tell you why that's so striking, because this goes against everything we know about authentic Christian experience. Here's what you might think. You might think that when you first become a Christian, you recognize that you're desperately in need of God to rescue you from your sin. But as time goes on, you might feel like you're getting, quote, unquote, better, and therefore you need God less. Maybe you've kicked some bad habits, you've picked up some new healthy ones, you grow more self-assured in your good deeds and in your right thinking. And therefore, it's very easy to start thinking that you need God less because you've made yourself more acceptable to God over time. And you can start to feel a little superior too. You can start to look down your nose at other people. That's what many would think would be the way in which you grow as a Christian. You, the, the more you grow as a Christian, the better you become and the less you need God's grace. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. Any Christian who has grown closer to the reality of God becomes infinitely more aware of the height of God's holiness and the depth of their sin. So the, the closer you get to God, you don't feel like you need him less, you feel like you need him more. The experience of a Christian is often like the experience of a scientist. 
I've known a number of scientists over the years, when I ask them this question, they all say the same thing. They could be studying astrophysics or microbiology, but either way, it doesn't matter. They would say that the more that they learn about the universe or the human body, the more aware they become of how little they know. And it's incredibly humbling. They see how far they have to go to understand. And they, they just stand in awe of the, of the mysteries that they're seeking to explore. And that's how it is with God. The, the, the closer you get to God, the more aware you are of your sin and your unworthiness and how much more you need his grace than you thought before. So take the Apostle Paul, for example. Were there greater leaders than the Apostle Paul in the history of the church? He wrote over a quarter of the New Testament. And yet here's the striking thing. What was Paul's experience as a Christian? What did it mean for him to grow in his faith? Well, if you put the statements that Paul makes about himself in the New Testament in chronological order, it reveals this growing awareness of God's holiness and his sinfulness. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He says, if you take all the immediate apostles of Jesus, the 12 plus a few others, I'm the least. But then a little bit later in his life, in Ephesians chapter 3, he doesn't call himself the least of the apostles. He says, I'm the least of God's people. If you take all the saints, all, all the people who are committed to God, I'm the least of them. But then near the very end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, do you know what he says? I am the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the worst offender. Now why is that? Is that just because Paul suffered from a, a problem of low self-esteem? Did he just have an overreactive conscience? No, the, the point is that the closer Paul got to the reality of God, the more he saw the heights of God's holiness and the depth of his own sin, he became ever more aware of his need. Now, if that's the regular pattern, then why doesn't that happen to Jesus? Jesus was more in touch with God than anyone. Even his enemies would say that, that Jesus lived on an altogether different plane. He, Jesus made, made God more real, more accessible, more attractive to everyone around him. But we never hear Jesus struggling with feelings of inadequacy. We never hear him expressing a sense of his unworthiness or, or crying out for forgiveness because of these feelings of guilt or remorse that he's suffering from. Do you realize that? In John chapter 6, he says, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And perhaps even more astonishing, in John chapter 8, he says, I always, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. None of us could ever say anything remotely like it. Not even the Apostle Paul. So Jesus is not just matchless, he's sinless. But then still more, he's selfless. And that brings us back to our passage from Mark chapter 10. James and John request these two top spots in Jesus' administration. But they really don't know what they're talking about. And so Jesus proceeds to ask them, well, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And naively, they respond by saying, yes, absolutely, anything, Jesus, we're all in. So Jesus has to explain 
Well, yes, you will drink the cup and you will be you will be baptized with the same baptism with which I am baptism, but baptized, but to sit at the right or at the left of me and my glory is not mine for give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What is this cup? Well, the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath that the prophet Jeremiah had spoken of. Jesus understood that we human beings, we were pulling down upon ourselves the just judgment of God because of our rebellion and failure, our participation in evil and sin, and yet Jesus knew that his calling, his vocation, was to step in and to drink that cup down to the dregs in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath as our substitute, and that is why he can say to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, because he will be condemned in her place. And Jesus knows that this will result in his death, and that's why he refers to his death as a kind of baptism. He's going to go under the waters of death, but he's going to come out again, out of the waters, in order to usher in forgiveness of sins and a whole new way of life. And ironically, he says, well, yes, James and John, you will share in that cup. You will share in my baptism, because little do they know, they too are going to have to suffer and eventually die because of their association, because of their commitment to Jesus. But he says, but it's not for me to decide who will sit at my right or at my left in my glory. Now, why does he say that? Well, as the story continues, and Mark tells it with just beautiful artistry, according to Mark's telling, the the moment when Jesus enters into his glory the moment when Jesus truly comes to power, the moment that we see into the heart of Jesus, the moment that we see what God is really like, the moment that Jesus becomes king in Mark's gospel is not the moment when he sits in a golden throne, but it's the moment when he hangs on a wooden cross. That is Jesus' glory. And who is at his right and at his left at that moment? Who were those spots prepared for? Well, they were prepared for the two criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. You see, the death of Jesus on a cross for helpless sinners like us is the glory of God. And that is when Jesus becomes king. So when the disciples are jockeying for position, as they do here in Mark 10, Jesus offers a little lesson in what true leadership looks like. And he says, look, out there in the world, People lord it over others. They, they get a little bit of power and it goes to their heads. They like to throw their weight around, try to get people to do what they want. They start to feel superior in comparison to others, as if they're more important than everyone else. But that's not the way it works in here. That might be the way in which it works out there in the world, but that's not the way it's going to work in here in my kingdom. In my kingdom, he says, if you want to be great, you've got to become a servant. If you want to become first, if you want to become number one, then you've got to become the slave of all. And that might sound, and it does, counterintuitive, if not crazy, because that's not the way the world works. But then Jesus points to himself, look at me, look at me. I'm the son of man. I'm the one and only son of God, and yet I have not come to be served, but to serve. 
and to give my life as a ransom for all. I'm not sinful, I'm sinless, and that's why I can give my life as a ransom for yours. But this is the the key, this is the paradoxical contrast that I want you to pay attention to. This is the way that John Stott once put it. Above all, Jesus was unselfish. Nothing is more striking than this. Although believing himself to be divine, he did not put on airs or stand on his dignity. He was never pompous. There was no touch of self-importance about Jesus. He was humble. It is this paradox which is so baffling, this combination of the self-centeredness of his teaching and the unself-centeredness of his behavior. In thought, he put himself first. Indeed, last. He exhibited both the greatest self-esteem and the greatest sacrifice. He knew himself to be the Lord of all, but he became their servant. He said he was going to judge the world, but he washed his apostles' feet. Never has anyone given up so much. This utter disregard of self in the service of God and man is what the Bible calls love. There's no self-interest in love. The essence of love is self-sacrifice. The worst of men is adorned by an occasional flash of such nobility, but the life of Jesus radiated it with a never-fading incandescent glow. Jesus was sinless because he was selfless. Such selflessness is love, and God is love. So do you see the startling contrast between the self-centered nature of Jesus' claims and the unself-centered nature of his actions? Jesus was self-centered in his teaching. He drew all the attention to himself. Our eternal destiny is dependent upon how we respond to him. He's the forgiver of sins, the judge of all the world, the one and only son of God, making himself equal with the Father. And yet, look at his unself-centered actions. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you look down through the corridors of history, you won't find anyone like this. There, of course, have been people who've made great claims about who they are or what they'll do. But usually, those are grandiose claims not based in reality. And if there's any truth to it, they end up being rather proud and arrogant and self-absorbed people. Or we might look down the halls of history and see people who were amazingly humble and committed to the service of others. We might think of someone like Gandhi. And yet, someone like Gandhi didn't make audacious claims about himself. You see, only Jesus was absolutely self-centered in his teaching and yet unself-centered in his actions. And it's that paradoxical combination which is so unique and there is simply no way to resolve that paradox unless Jesus really is who he claims to be. And so my question for you is what are you going to do about that? As as I said at the beginning, the one thing that we can't do is the one thing that many people try to do, and that is to ignore it. But we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it if we want to be intellectually honest, because this is how the historical sources, the earliest gospels, present Jesus to us. And so here's my recommendation. Whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, this went. Why don't you read through one of the gospels? With this dynamic in mind, 
looking for this paradoxical combination between his self-centered teaching and his unself-centered actions. Look for the ways in which he puts himself first in thought and yet last in deed. And if you do that, well, here's what will happen. I have no doubt that you will begin to feel the magnetic pull of Jesus. You will see that Jesus is in a category all his own. There's no one like him. He has no peers, no rivals, no equals. And though he is the greatest, he assumes the position of the least. Though he's the ultimate somebody, he acts like a complete nobody. And that is what is so irresistibly attractive about the character of Jesus. But, but if you start to feel the pull of his person, something else might begin to happen. And it might even be a little bit disturbing. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see him for who he really is, the more you become aware of how far you fall short. The more you see the heights of his holiness, the more you see the depths of your sin. You see your sin, your pride, your egotism, your self-absorption more and more. And that can be depressing. We see ourselves for who we really are. We, we, we look at Jesus and we say, yes, that's what I want to be like. That's what we all want to be like. He represents the, the pinnacle of what it means to be human. He, he demonstrates a fully human life. Look at that breathtaking majesty. And yet, humility. Or look at this firm conviction, this, this, this uncompromising conviction, and yet, gentleness. Or look at this infinite power and yet vulnerability and approachability and openness look at his sympathy and his deep sensitivity and yet unyielding unending joy there really is nothing like it and so we we say yes that's what I want that's what we should all be but I'm so far from becoming anything like that so the experience becomes bittersweet I've got such a long way to go I don't know if it's ever even possible you see, the fact is, we really are, we really are just caterpillars. We're just caterpillars yearning to become butterflies, and we don't know if it's really possible. And so when we see Jesus for who he is and who we are in light of him, it can be a little bit bittersweet, but you know what? Here's the best part. Because as we see Jesus for who he is, and the more you recognize yourself for who you really are, the more you will experience the depth of his love for you. Because Jesus knows you as you are. And Jesus lived, he died, and he rose. Not for the best version of yourself, but for the worst version of yourself. He gave it all. He sacrificed everything. He held nothing back. He put it all on the line. He gave himself as a ransom for you. And not only that, he promises that one day, if you let him, he will transform you so that your character matches his. Is that not amazing? <laughs> as far above us as he may seem, he promises that one day, give him time, let him do the work, you will become like him. So maybe you remember these words from C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity. He says, if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. 
The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. This is the most astonishing promise. If you come to grips with Jesus' character, if you see that he does represent the pinnacle of what it means to be a human being, and if you unite yourself to him by faith because of what he's done for you by his grace, then he promises that he will make you just like himself. Beloved, we are God's children now, and we do not know yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but this is what we are in for, nothing less. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that far too often we fail to see the seeming paradox between Jesus' self-centered teaching and the unself-centered nature of his character. And so we pray that during this Lenten season, with fresh eyes, we would pay attention not only to the claims that Jesus made, but to the character that he displayed. And help us to see that the only way to resolve that apparent paradox is if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, matchless, sinless, and selfless. We pray that we would unite our hearts anew to Jesus by faith and lay hold of that promise that though it may take a long time and may be very hard, God is at work in our lives even now to make us just like him. We pray that you would do that transforming work in our lives through your Holy Spirit's power, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.